0: Morning. Good morning. It's really good to be back with you this morning. Thanks so much for praying for me as I was away at the conference in Indiana last week. Everything went fine. Uh, we had a few workshops that Inspire uh, produced that I think a lot of pastors were really blessed by, and uh, our meal went fine. So thanks for, for praying, not only for safety, but just that the ministry that uh, we did there uh, had an impact and was beneficial to, to some pastors. So, Thanks for that. I also want to thank everyone who took care of everything while I was away, especially want to thank Pastor Todd for preaching last week. Uh, he did a great job. I appreciated just the, the, his heart and the Word of God reminding us uh, not to worry. That was, uh, I found it beneficial. Hopefully you did too. I, I was thinking though, if we could just get Pastor Todd to bring a little more energy, I, mean, I think we'd really have something there, but uh, he, he did a great job. So this morning, we are wrapping up our tour through the ruins of seven ancient cities that currently, the ruins still exist in modern-day Turkey. I had the opportunity to see them in person back in March. And about 60 years after the church began, Jesus told the apostle John to write a letter, to write a letter, gave John this revelation and told John to write a letter to these seven specific churches throughout Asia Minor. And I, I think it's important for us, now that we're wrapping this up, uh, just to make this point that what we've been reading, uh, it's not seven different letters. This is one letter. This revelation that Jesus gave to the Apostle John and then told him to write a letter, it's one letter. Now, it, is, it contains seven specific messages to seven specific churches, but uh, all of those messages were intended not only for them individually, they were intended for you and for me, for the church today. And we know this because at the conclusion of each one of those specific messages, Jesus repeats the same phrase. He said this, "'He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches.'" and that's us. So I think it's important to remember uh, that this is one uh, one long letter written to these seven churches, that it, it impacts us. It's uh, These messages are for us today as well. But I also think it's important to understand and, and remember that what we've been studying is two chapters out of 22 chapters. So I Admittedly, I'm terrible at math, so I was not able. I thought, man, how could I figure out the percentage of 2 and 22? I couldn't do it. I couldn't figure it out. And uh, I know there's probably someone in the room right now who has checked out of my sermon right now, and they're like, I'm going to figure this out. I'll show him at the end of the sermon. Fine, if you want to do that, do it quickly so you can come back and join us in the sermon. I don't know what the percentage is exactly, but I do know this. 2 out of 22 means a high percentage of this letter, a high percentage of this message, the revelation that Jesus gave to John, contains prophecy. It's not just these seven specific messages to these churches. There's a lot of prophecy, and uh, if you've if you've never read through the Book of Revelation, I know it's kind of heavy lifting, uh, but just as a summary statement of what comes after these two chapters, there's prophecy about a one world government that's coming in the future and a really, really terrible, awful, evil global dictator. And and, and there's prophecies about these terrible judgments that God will rain down on earth. And it's all going to result in a lot of death from starvation and plague and earthquake and war and, and global genocide. Things are going to get rough. But... There's really good news in this revelation as well. For the believer in Jesus Christ, this story, this future uh, prophecy that uh, Jesus gave to John and then gave the churches into us, uh, it ends for the believer in an incredible way. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to return and he's going to rescue his, his church uh, he's he's gonna defeat the, uh, the 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 dictator and his army and set up his kingdom for a thousand years and then create a new heaven and a new earth. And and those who have trusted in Jesus will be with Jesus forever in this new heaven and this new earth. So the book of Revelation, this in its entirety is it's a lot. It's a lot to digest. And I'll just say this. There's a lot of really smart people, people way smarter than me, who love Jesus, uh, who, who debate and disagree over what some of these images represent. Now, we, we would all agree, I, I think most honest Bible scholars would agree, that these images represent real events in the future. They represent real people uh, that will do real things. But there's disagreement over timing. There's disagreement over what some of these images represent. So I will say this just as a summary what I think you need to know. There's two things I think you need to know about the rest of the book that I think will help us as we conclude this series. The first thing is this. The world that John saw in this revelation that Jesus gave to him of the one world government, the evil global dictator and so forth, that world is being built right now. We are closer to the reality of that world than we ever have been. Every day, our world is moving closer and closer to that reality, and it's faster and faster every day. But the other thing that you need to know is this. Jesus is going to keep His promise. Jesus is going to rescue His church. He he will establish His kingdom. He will take us as believers, to live with Him forever in a brand new heaven and earth with no more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. Those are the two big rocks that you have to understand about the, the revelation that Jesus gave to John, and I think it will help us as we wrap up this series. This is a whole letter, and as we read this last message that Jesus had for the church in Laodicea, I think that is an important part of what we need to understand about what Jesus had to say to them. So here we go. Open your Bibles. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. If you don't have your Bible with you, grab the one in front of you. If you prefer, you can use your phone. The notes, all the verses are on our digital notes, which you can find at gracefellowship.online. Verse 14. Write this letter to the angel, the pastor, the elder of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do. This is Jesus speaking. I know all the things you do, Laodicea, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, literally vomit you out of my mouth. You can say, "I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing." And you don't realize that actually you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked this is a, he's describing their true spiritual condition they think that they are spiritually strong they think that they are spiritually right with god but jesus is revealing to them no you don't see what i see what i see is you're lukewarm you're spiritually apathetic you're you're spiritually wretched and miserable spiritually poor and blind and naked Verse 18, so Jesus says, I advise you to buy gold for me. Find true value in the things that Jesus values. Gold that has been purified by fire. Then, then you will be rich. Also, he says, buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness. Talking about their righteousness in Jesus. And then he says, and ointment, buy ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to, To see, spiritually speaking, they were blind. They didn't see what their hearts really looked like, what their spiritual condition really was. And he wants them to have this spiritual insight into what's really happening in their hearts. Verse 19, I correct and discipline everyone I love. Don't gloss over that. I want to repeat it. I discipline, I rebuke everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference, repent of your apathy. Look, I stand at the door and knock, and I just want you to have this image in your mind. Imagine Jesus standing at the door of their church, outside, not inside, knocking, wanting to be invited into their church. That's the picture that Jesus is painting. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. We'll share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne. Here's the picture of the future that we just talked about. Just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying. To the is wow, this, this is a rough message from Jesus. Jesus had nothing good to say about this church. Now, I do want to be careful not to misrepresent the tone by which Jesus is addressing this church. Go back to uh, this, this part of the, the, the message where he says, I correct, I discipline everyone that I love. Jesus tells them, I love you. Yes, he's direct. Yes, what he has to say is not pleasant to hear. But Jesus is saying, I'm telling you this because I love you. It's like when someone offers you a mint. Everyone ever offer you a mint? Offers you gum? Everyone ever do that? Listen, if you don't know this already, I'll give you a little uh, life lesson if someone ever offers you a mint or they offer you gum, take it. Always take it. Always say yes. There's a good chance that the person who is offering you a mint, the person who is offering you the gum, they might not be as direct as Jesus. And so they might be saying, listen, in a roundabout way, listen, I love you, but you got some stank breath right now. You need to chew this gum before I throw up. That might be what they're what they're trying to say. Always say yes to the mint offer. You ever wonder why we have an endless supply of mints in the back? Grab a handful. When uh, this happens in my in my home too. My, when when I get done trimming the yard, like I mow the grass, and I, I hate to use the weed whacker, I hate it. But a few times the summer, I'll I'll actually do it. I'll get the weed eater out, and I hate it because I get disgusting, right? I, when I when I weed eat. Uh, I am sweaty and all of the grass particles are all over me and I stink. And when I come into the house and I'm just gross, every time that happens, I have the same conversation with my wife. It is the same conversation every time. She looks at me, and she says, "Honey, I love you. Thank you for making the grass look so beautiful, but you is nasty. You are gross." We can kiss after you get a shower every time it's the same conversation i don't I don't know, and we don't have to get into it. I don't know what it would take to make you want to throw up. like what would be that trigger for you? Again, we don't need to discuss it right now. but I would imagine that most of us uh, it's to to make us want to feel that way, uh, it's got to be something pretty gross or it's got to be something pretty traumatic. Have you ever experienced something, you watch it happen, or something happens in your family and it's traumatic and you just you want to vomit? It's usually something of one of those two, at least for me, that makes me physically ill. And so I read this and I'm wondering what is it about Laodicea that made Jesus this disgusted with them? That he says to them, guys, listen, I love you. I love you, but right now, right now you make me want to throw up. I think there's some things that we need to know about the city itself, the culture of the city that I think will help us answer this question more fully. So I want to just share with you three things that I think will be important. First thing is this, In, in the year 17, 17 AD, so Jesus has not yet started his his earthly ministry. The church doesn't exist yet. Year 17, there was a huge earthquake, and Laodicea was impacted. It was devastated by this earthquake. And so they asked Rome for help. They asked Rome for financial assistance. Specifically, they asked if they could have money to build a new temple, a new pagan temple. You would think that would be an easy ask. But Tiberius, the emperor at the time, said no, no. In fact, he not only said no to Laodicea, Tiberius gave the money to build a new pagan temple to Smyrna. Now, I'm sure there were political reasons behind the scenes as to why the money went somewhere else. But the people of Laodicea were ticked. They were mad. In fact, they were so offended that collectively, as a city, they decided, you know what? We don't need you, Rome, anymore. And they collectively decided they wanted to be self-sufficient. And they worked really hard to make themselves independent, self-sufficient from Rome. By the year 60... All right, so now now, yes, Jesus has uh, died, risen from the dead, church begins, right? All of these things have taken place. By the year 60, there is another really bad earthquake. And at that time, Nero, who was the Emperor, Nero offered to help. And Laodicea said, No, thank you. No, thank you. We don't want your help, we don't need your help, we're good. There was an attitude in the city of Laodicea of self-sufficiency that throughout the years had turned into a prideful self-dependency. Let me say that again. Their self-sufficiency desire over the years turned into this prideful self-dependency. We don't need anybody. We're good. That was the city attitude. That was the culture. The second thing I want you to know about the city of Laodicea, one of the reasons they were able to be self-sufficient and self-dependent was because they were really rich. They were a very wealthy city. They didn't need the money from the national government to rebuild after that second earthquake. They had already prepared for that and taken care of it. The city had everything that you could ever want. They had two huge theaters. One of them was an 8,000-seat theater. One was a 12,000-seat theater. They had a 25,000-seat stadium. You would never get bored in Laodicea. They had four major bath complexes, and their wealth allowed them to be sufficient. They had temples and theaters. They had all of these things. There's a few pictures scrolling behind me about uh, that show you some of the... There's a pagan temple there, and there's the ruins of one of the, uh, one of the, the theaters. And what I want you to see, uh, if you put the picture up with the theater, if you look beyond the theater, theater and you can kind of see what's down below it, the city itself is, is located on the top of this high plain, hundreds of feet uh, above, uh, down below uh, the, the, uh, the city and, and, and other things down below. You go, can you put up the, the picture of the theater? Um, if not, it's fine. Just imagine that the city is up on this high plane. And why that's important is because it, it uh, allowed them to be safe. It, lo- it allowed them to be secure because you can defend high ground a lot easier than you can if you were down below. And so they had an attitude of safety and security and, and their wealth Made them feel that way too. They they also had a medical school, and so they were very confident in in their knowledge and understanding. Um, I have some eye salve. They were famous for this eye salve. They uh, it was very popular. One of the things that actually Jesus references uh, here in in the text. Uh, this is a powder form that you would you would mix up and. Uh, If you want to check it out afterwards, they still produce this today. Same stuff that they had uh, back in the ancient days right here. So you can check that out afterwards. They They had good medical coverage. They had good farmlands. Here's my point. Life was good in Laodicea. They had everything they needed. They had everything they wanted. They didn't need anything else. Remember that. So they have this self-dependent attitude, and it's, it's fueled by the fact that they have everything that they could ever want. Third thing you need to know about the city, there was a problem, and their problem was water. You'll notice that Jesus paints this picture of being either hot, cold water or lukewarm water. They had a water problem in Laodicea. There were these minerals, sulfur and other minerals, in the water that made it unsafe to drink. Now, there's pictures of some pipes, and if you look in the pipes, you can still, these are not modern pipes, these are back from this particular time period, uh, you can still see the minerals in those, in those terracotta pipes. Their water was, was not only gross, unsafe to drink, if you did drink it, you would vomit. The, the minerals, the makeup of the water itself, you would, it would make you vomit. It came from, the water came from these hot geothermal springs, uh, the source of which was 10 miles away or so in in the city of Heropolis. Here's some things you need to know about Heropolis because it it ties in. There's there's three cities that are real close together within 10 miles of each other. You have Laodicea, you have Heropolis, and Colossae. You've heard of Colossae, Colossians from the Bible. Uh, and and Heropolis was was famous for a number of things. Number one, they had an incredible theater. Of all the different theaters that we saw, this uh, particular one in Heropolis was uh, restored to a point where it's like, that is amazing. And I have some pictures of that. But they also have these hot springs. And you can see in the pictures what the hot springs looked like and still to this day look like. I actually had the opportunity. One of the hotels that we stayed in, they had... Uh, a I'll call it a hot tub uh, but it wasn't like a jacuzzi it was a concrete thing that they used the geothermal hot water and it would dump into the into this big uh, circular tub and there'd be this mud and it was kind of gross but it was kind of cool to be in in the same kinds of baths that they would have had back in in ancient days and people would go there for these hot springs for healing purposes and for relaxation The water that uh, they had access to in Laodicea was the same water, but by the time it would get to Laodicea, it was not hot. It was just lukewarm and gross. It was useless. And so they had to pipe in water from the mountains of Colossae, the snow-covered mountains of Colossae. That was like the Roaring Spring Bottling Company of their day. And I have a couple of pictures of the snow-covered mountains. So you you have in your mind, this is the reality that the people of Laodicea live in. They don't have the the soothing hot springs of Hierapolis. They don't have the cold, refreshing water of Colossae. They just have this gross water. And and it's a reality that they had to deal with every day. And Jesus used that daily reality of their water problem to say this to the church in Laodicea. So I'm going to uh, summarize what Jesus said this way. He, he was telling them, guys, you, you have a problem with pride. You have a problem with pride. You have this attitude about your wealth that makes you live life like you don't need me. You don't even want me around. I'm standing outside the church knocking, hoping that you'll invite me into your everyday lives. But instead... You are finding satisfaction in your money. You're finding satisfaction in your entertainment. You're finding satisfaction in pleasure or a sense of security. You think that you're spiritually strong, but here's the reality. You're actually spiritually apathetic. You are spiritually deceived because you're finding satisfaction in the wrong things. I I wish that you were spiritually refreshing like the mountains of Colossae. I I wish that you were spiritually soothing and and brought healing to others like the hot springs of Heropolis. But instead, your self-sufficiency has turned you into this this lukewarm, spiritually apathetic bunch. And you don't even see it. You don't even see it. Now, if we were to be honest with each other, how easy would it be at this point to just kind of shake our heads and, Laodicea, you terrible Laodiceans, what a bunch of spiritual toads you are, unbelievable, I can't believe you guys. But here's the, the fact that I can't walk away from, that they didn't realize that this is what had happened to their hearts. They didn't see it. They thought they were spiritually strong. They thought they were right with God. It's like the guy who walks into the room and he smells like the worst B.O. you've ever caught a whiff of and he has no idea that he stinks. And that's what Jesus is saying. You you guys don't even see it. That rattles me. It should rattle you. If they stunk and didn't realize it, is it not possible that we also could stink? That we could have spiritual B.O. and not realize it? Is it possible? It happened to them. You're like, oh, no way. There's no way, pastor. You're just being silly. I I would know if my life made Jesus want to vomit. How could you not know that? When, I'll just ask you, kind of walk with me on this, right? When would you say, answer in your own mind, in your own heart, when would you say that you are most aware of your need for Jesus? Just think about it. When am I most aware of my need for Jesus? When is my prayer life, when is your prayer life most consistent? When is is your prayer life or my prayer life most filled with faith it's probably during those dark and difficult days that we sometimes experience it's it's when our awareness of our need for Jesus is most obvious when we're going through something that's hard but what about when life is good what about the seasons of life when When you and I, we have all that we need and more. We have no problems. See, these are the seasons of life when we are most tempted with self-dependency. This satisfaction that we can find somewhere other than Jesus. And I think this is where self-awareness gets a little tricky. I think it gets a little tricky because self-sufficiency, and I'm using those two words differently on purpose, self-sufficiency, self-dependency, two different things. I think there's value in self-sufficiency. I see value in that. I I would imagine that many of you do. I can relate to the Laodiceans in that I, I don't want the government taking care of me and my family. I get that. But I also know this, sometimes in life self sufficiency can turn into self dependency and that is usually where the problem of pride starts to take root in our hearts. See, if I'm self dependent, I don't need the church. I don't need the body of Christ. I can do worship on my own from home. My couch is more comfortable than these pews anyway. If I'm self-dependent, I don't need the Bible. I'm smart enough to figure out how to live life. I can come up with my own standards of right and wrong. What do I need the Bible for? If I'm self-dependent, I don't need Jesus. I have all I need in life. Life's good. Jesus is welcome to sit over there on standby, if He'd like, in case life gets too sideways. I don't need Him right now, I'm self-dependent. You know, I sometimes scratch my head, and I wonder, how do we get to this place in the American church where, as a pastor, I feel that there are times when, when I have to convince Christians that God expects us to worship with and fellowship with other believers. That's curious to me as to why would I have to convince Christians that God expects us to be together? I sometimes feel as a pastor that I have to make an argument, that I have to try to convince Christians to take sexual purity seriously. That I have to defend biblical principles on, on morality or, or the biblical standard against abortion. Not to pagans, to Christians. Look, I, I get it. I understand why those who are far from God, those who are not interested in what the Bible teaches... I totally understand why they look at, at, at the things that we as a church teach and believe and they look at us like we're weird or whatever words they want to, use. I get that, because they're far from God. They, they, they don't have the spiritual uh, understanding that the Word of God offers to us, right? I get it. They don't have a biblical worldview, but a Christian should have a biblical worldview. I Why is the divorce rate among Christians as high as it is among those who don't know Jesus? Why is that happening? Because I I absolutely believe in God's grace. I absolutely believe that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from from every sin, from every stain of sin that removes our shame of sin. Don't, Don't hear me condemning uh, those uh, who, have, who have sinned and made mistakes in the past, if you've, if you've trusted Christ, if, if you have uh, asked for re- uh, forgiveness and repented, it's done, it's over, it's been forgiven and washed away. It's, it'll never be brought up again by Jesus. I absolutely believe that's what the Scripture teaches. But why are the clear standards of holiness and righteousness being questioned by those who call themselves Christians. Why is that happening? How do we get to a place in the American church? and I'm not picking on you. I'm saying across the nation, how do we get to a place where we can we can have people sit in a church, weak after week, after week, and they think that they are spiritually strong. Like, that's what they see themselves as. They see themselves as spiritually strong and at the same time have no desire to follow Jesus. No desire to, to join Him in His mission, to share the gospel with people. Now, there's not any one reason for that, but I do think that a big part of why that has happened is because I think sometimes we forget that we need Jesus every day. Not just on the day of our salvation. We don't just need Jesus to save us from hell. We absolutely do. But I think this happens sometimes when we choose to find our satisfaction in life some other place other than in our relationship with Jesus. What's the gospel teach us? The gospel teaches us that we're born lost that we're born enemies of God, we have no way of making ourselves right with God because he's perfect, because he's holy. And so what did God do? God sent Jesus, the sinless son of God, to come to earth and and Jesus allowed himself to be sacrificed as a substitute payment to appease the wrath of God against your sin and my sin. And his death on the cross was that substitute Payment for the death that we deserve. And if we admit that we are sinners far from God, if we, if we admit that that's who we are and trust Jesus to remedy that problem... Trusting in His work on the cross, trusting in the power of His resurrection from the dead. If we repent of our sin, trusting Jesus to forgive us, to make us right with God, to give us the Holy Spirit, to transform our lives, what does the gospel say? It says that we will have eternal life, that our future is secure. Just like the rest of the the way this letter ends, with a secure future for the believer. And the Christian, we we celebrate that gospel truth. We are so thankful for that gospel truth, that, that future hope in Christ is secure. We're thankful, yes? But The gospel also teaches us that we need Jesus in our lives for more than just the day of our salvation. We need Jesus every single day. We need Jesus now. Our spiritual transformation is about becoming like Jesus and being in relationship with Jesus and trusting Jesus to satisfy our souls. I think that's why Jesus was so upset and disgusted with Laodicea because they they had found their satisfaction somewhere other than in the relationship with Jesus. Most of us probably know Philippians 4.13 by heart. It's a pretty, pretty common verse, a pretty popular verse, even among those who don't really know a whole lot about the Bible or about God. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him, through Christ who strengthens me, who gives me strength, right? Most of the time that this verse is quoted or this verse is claimed, it's, it's quoted and claimed in the face of some great challenge or difficulty or maybe when we need courage to do hard things. And I, just, I, I absolutely believe that everything means everything. I do believe that. But in the context of the verse itself, it is talking specifically about contentment. It's talking about where do we find satisfaction in life? Verse 11, so just back up two verses. Verse 11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Him, through Christ who gives me strength. Paul's point is that his his strength, his satisfaction, his contentment was all found in Christ, in his relationship with Jesus. I read that and go, why would it be hard to find contentment and satisfaction in life during times of plenty? When I have everything that I need, when I have everything that I want, why would it be hard to be content then? Because those are the days when we are tempted to find our satisfaction in life somewhere other than Jesus. And those other places will leave us empty. These are the seasons in life when when self-sufficiency can easily turn into self-dependency, which can turn into a prideful heart that says, you know what, I'm good. I don't really need Jesus Is it possible that our hearts could look like the hearts of the Laodicean church? And I caution you, no, there's no way, that, that's not me. Okay, remember, they didn't see it either. So I'm just, I'm just asking us to be honest and, and, and self-aware that is it possible? They didn't know they had a stinky heart attitude that made Jesus want to throw up. Is it possible that it's happened to me, that it's happened to me? To you that self sufficiency has turned into self dependency, and then into pride. No need for Jesus. I'll find my satisfaction somewhere else. I have all I need. Life's good. What do I need Jesus for? Chapter three ends in this pretty dark scene. It's uh, it is. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. You. you Jesus paints this picture of himself standing outside the church, knocking, asking to come in and do everyday life with a bunch of so-called Christians who were satisfied with a life apart from Jesus. Jesus tells them he loves them. He tells them that he he would discipline them out of love. He's calling them to repentance, but it ends. And chapter 4 begins... As chapter 4 begins, it begins this description of the forces of hell taking over the earth and the judgment of God falling to the earth. Welcome to Grace Fellowship Church, right? where feel-good sermons are for wimps. Actually, I, I, I started the sermon this way on purpose because I wanted you to understand there's some pretty tough things that happen in this letter that are going to happen and that that are gearing up as we speak. But the letter doesn't end in doom and gloom. The letter ends in the victory of Jesus. The letter ends in this incredible eternal hope that the believer in Jesus Christ will one day enjoy. So we're not going to end our series in a cloud of despair either. And we don't have to. When I was in Laodicea, I stood inside this church. This church was built in the 300s. It was the largest of among 20 Christian chapels throughout the city. It took up an entire city block. Laodicea became the home of a very important Christian bishop, and that meant that they were able to host a very important Christian council where doctrinal decisions were made for the church. In fact, this is the church where it was discussed and decided that Sunday would be our day of worship instead of Saturday. That decision was made here. Now, there was a lot of cool things going on. Some things we would like, some things we won't because there was like a desire to distance themselves from the Jewish people who were uh, not being favored at the time. There was some weird things happening of why that decision happened, but this is where it happened. There's also this really cool baptistry that I uh, still am amazed at, this picture of this cool baptistry. And uh, they practiced, this is kind of cool for us at Grace Fellowship, they practiced what we would call triune immersion, three dips under the water. That's how, that's how we baptize today. Now I also have to say in full disclosure, they also did naked baptism, which I'm not super into. Uh, but, but here's how they would do baptism. So you see the baptistry. So imagine the baptistry is behind me. Do not imagine anything else other than what I'm describing, okay? Don't take this too far. But uh, uh, imagine the baptistry behind me. I'm getting baptized. The person getting baptized would have their back to the baptistry. They would take off their dirty robe. They would denounce Satan. They would then go into the baptistry. They would get into the water, and they would go under. They would immerse themselves in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And then they would come up out of the water, and they would have a clean white robe placed on them. That's a pretty cool picture, right? Sounds pretty biblical. Again, super glad we're not doing the naked baptism part of that anymore, but that's a really neat picture of of, uh, this new life that we have in Jesus Christ. My point is this. Maybe maybe it was the rebuke of Jesus. Maybe it was the discipline of Jesus in their lives. (laughs) Maybe it was the rest of the apocalyptic nature of this letter that scared them into re-evaluating their spiritual condition. But historically speaking, we can see that they apparently repented. They let Jesus into their everyday lives. They they learned to find satisfaction in Jesus. They came back to an understanding of what it means to need Jesus every day, and their city was transformed by the gospel. That's pretty cool. Listen, I I don't know what's happening in, in your heart this morning, I'm just asking us to be open with God and ask the hard question, is it possible that Jesus needs to break down some self-dependency in your heart, in my heart? Is it possible that there is some pride that has taken root in our hearts that Jesus needs to rip the roots out? Is it possible that we have been finding our satisfaction in life somewhere other than in Jesus? If so, listen again to the words of Jesus. He said this to them. He says it to you. He says it to me. I love you. I love you. Whenever Jesus rebukes us, whenever he disciplines us, whenever he calls us out on our bad attitude, our stinky attitude, or or our disobedience, and he disciplines us, whenever he does these things, he does it from a heart of love. He loves us. He wants what's best for us, and what is best for us is an everyday relationship with Him. What is best for us is finding our satisfaction in our relationship with Him.